Uh, if you've been here over the course of the last uh, number of weeks, uh, you'll know that we've been looking uh, at how we as individuals and as a church deal with disagreements over matters of secondary importance. And in the context of the chapter that, we, that preceded the reading today and in the context of this chapter, it really was about the Jewish believers who had their own particular uh, beliefs about diet. And they were now joined with their Gentile brothers and sisters who really didn't seem to have very many reservations of any sort when it came to eating. And we also saw that there are, and there always have been, uh, in every generation, uh, other matters of this type of issue. Now, as we move on from chapter 14 into chapter 15, Paul concludes this theme. He's wrapping up what he has said, but he's putting it into a broader canvas, into more general principles about church attitudes. So I was left with choosing a title for today, and I've chosen one which I personally find very challenging. And I think that if you allow this passage to get to you today, uh, you will also find it challenging. Uh, I decided to call this morning Church Theory or Church Practice. So whether you're a pastor, the elders, a lifetime member of the congregation, the newest person to come along, that's the, that's the question. Are we going to pick up this chapter as good theology? Because it is. Good theory, because that's what it is. Or are we going to allow God's word to be the standard against which we judge ourselves? So it is a challenging title. The passage is really about our conduct. When we come to know Christ as Savior, it's a transformation that comes about by faith and faith alone. Works, what we are, what we do, don't come into it. It's a matter of that transaction with Jesus on the basis of what he has done and our faith in him. But that faith always has very serious implications for how we subsequently behave. And so if we see ourselves as having come to faith, but it hasn't affected our behavior and isn't affecting our behavior, then there's a really serious question to be asked. So let's just see what these verses say. If you have them open in front of you, that will be a great help. So first of all, we're going to look at our conduct. And the first thing I, I pick up from this passage is don't please yourself. That is what it says in the very first verse. Now, there are those who by conviction or background have taboos and inhibitions that more mature Christians have come to terms with. And Paul calls on them, the strong he calls them, 
to bear with the failings of the weak. That, that, those are the words of the, of the translation that we have. And while this absolutely applies to the problems of chapter 14, whenever we begin to look a little more closely at the language involved in chapter 15, we find that it goes much wider and much deeper. Now, I don't know any Greek. I remember being at an IVF conference, or, well, UCCF now, conference many years ago as a student, and the speaker was a very famous man from Northern Ireland called T.S. Mooney, uh, who uh, was single, a misogynist, and uh, a wonderful expositor of God's Word, and he had a very squeaky voice. And uh, we were on this enormous, great uh, uh, conference of people from Cambridge and Oxford and London and all over the joint. And T.S. got up and said, his opening remarks in his very squeaky voice was, I know neither Hebrew nor Greek, apart from hallelujah and amen. And this guy behind me whispered to his neighbor, one of those is actually Hebrew. <laughs> so I, I kind of fall into that category. But I can read books. And the word that's translated here, bear with doesn't just mean tolerate. That's not what the passage is saying. It's not saying tolerate those who have failings. It says bear with them. Now, this is exactly the same word that's used of Jesus bearing his cross. This is a heavy word. And when you look at uh, the, 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 the background of the word, it carries meanings like lift up, and carry, and take up. And the translation, the feelings of the weak, is also rather lighter than, than the original language suggests. The King James Version says, take up the infirmities of the weak, or even the, the weaknesses of the weak. And what's being said here is that we have responsibilities to carry and support and lift up brothers and sisters in their weakness. Whether we consider ourselves to be strong or weak, every one of us has our weaknesses. So your weakness is my issue. But I have bad news for you. My weakness is your issue. That is the sense behind this passage that we are to bear one another's burden. And that has been said before by Paul, or said after by Paul in Galatians 6 and 2. Bear one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. One of the most common reasons I have noticed over my years for people leaving church is that because there's something that doesn't please them. Uh, could be the music, it could be the preaching, it could be the coffee. Yes, people have left church because they haven't liked the coffee. But it is rarely, if ever in my experience, because they haven't had sufficient opportunities to please others. 
So this command not to please ourselves is actually quite hard-hitting. Paul then goes on to the next verse, and he deals with those whom he describes as neighbors. And our obligation here, again, is not to please ourselves, but rather to please them. Now, what does this mean to please your neighbor? Well, I suppose it's a scriptural commandment that goes right away back to Leviticus, uh, restated in the New Testament, do to others as you have them do to you. But this can't mean anything goes. You know, I guess all our neighbors, and they probably feel the same about us, uh, have things that we really are not going to commend in their behavior. So, what is this pleasing our neighbors all about? I find John Stott made a very helpful distinction here between neighbor-pleasing and men-pleasing. Men-pleasing in the Scriptures usually means choosing to please others rather than God. And it's definitely not that. But actually, when you read the verse, the clue is actually in the verse. The answer to the question is in the verse. Because at the end of the verse, it says that this pleasing of neighbors is for our neighbor's good and to build them up. So that's how we determine whether what we're doing to, in the, to please our neighbors is the right thing or not. Is it for their good? Or is it to build them up? Or is it just to stop them throwing their rubbish over our fence? And if we want to model what this looks like in practice, Paul directs us to Christ, who engaged with the weak in their weaknesses, who brought good and edification and building up to all who would accept it from him, and who at the cross gave the greatest and most vivid illustration of what not pleasing yourself looks like. The next element of conduct that he mentions is unity. And there's a lot that might be said about Christian unity on a wider canvas, but that's for another day. Because here Paul says quite explicitly, it's unity among yourselves. And he says that that happens whenever you follow Christ. And he says it's expressed in worship that is rooted both in our hearts and expressed in our voice. Now very often when we're talking about unity, particularly when we're talking about unity in the church, we encourage each other to, to, in some sort of a sense, give up our own ideas so that we don't break the unity of the church. And that's true. But if we take it to, our, to its logical conclusion, we could very well end up uniting around the lowest common denominator, which happens to be the most divisive man in the church, which would not be good for church life. So again, the answer to the problem, the answer to the question comes in the text because it says, as you follow Christ. 
And the best illustration I came across of this was apparently, for, well, it is from A.W. Tozer, and I, but I did hear it quoted by somebody else. And this is what Tozer said. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos tuned to the same fork will automatically be in tune with each other? I shouldn't really comment on music, but even I get that. Of course we must be careful not to fall out with each other. Of course we must be careful not to let our opinions be the source of disunity in the church. But it is our individual responsibility to keep that relationship with Jesus right because if we're all tuned into him, that's what will produce the unity. The third part of conduct that Paul mentions here is to accept one another. Now, this is easier said than done sometimes. Sometimes it's race or background or status or wealth or appearance or employment or politics or a hundred other variables that prevent us from really fully accepting another person. But once again, Paul takes us to Christ and our personal experience. Whatever might make someone else unacceptable to you or me, that thing is nothing compared to how unacceptable we were to God. Sinful, rebellious, unrighteous, unclean, unbelieving, and yet Jesus died for us. Salvation was offered to us. Eternal life has been given to us. Heaven awaits us. How dare I, having experienced that, find you unacceptable? In Rome, of course, the major divide was between those who grew up Jewish, who read the Torah, sought to obey its rules, and for most of their history, to be honest, lived with the effects of rebelling against it. They still felt, and indeed they were, by definition, God's chosen people. Everybody else was a Gentile. That's you and I. Now, through Christ, these two have been brought together. I was trying to think of some non-biblical example that would even sort of get close to this. It's not a particularly good one, but the best I could think of was maybe the relationship between a slave and his master after the emancipation of the slaves. It was that dramatic. It was that big for Jews and Gentiles. And then I thought maybe our own dear political system gave us an example. People forced together without grace find acceptance beyond them, as we prove every day in this country. And the really telling point that Paul makes here is that Christ became a servant to both, to the Jew and to the Gentile. That's our model. That's where we're coming from. 
servants of each other. So stop at this point. Take the question implied in the, in the title and say, is this the theory or the practice in my life? Now we leave contact, contact, conduct and we move on to example. If you've been paying attention, you'll have noticed that at each point, Paul encourages encourages us to conduct ourselves properly by holding up Christ as the example. Christ did not please himself. Verse 3, neither must we. Following Christ produces unity and worship. Christ accepted us, so we must accept others. Christ became a servant to both Jew and Gentile. And having dealt with those four applications, Paul then gives us a perfect illustration of what David Glass spoke of last Sunday when he was asked about the Old Testament, if you were here. He spoke of context and how the Old Testament does indeed speak of the Lord Jesus uh, very clearly. But lots of what was said in the Old Testament remained obscure to, to the Jewish people. And was only recognized whenever these new Christians, presumably the Old Testament studying Jewish ones, looked at it again. And they began to see in the scriptures that they knew so well that, that there were things there that had never really registered with them before. The Bible has that effect, actually, even to this day. Paul has already done this in verse 7 when he quotes Psalm 69 and 9. Who would have known that this psalm, which is about the suffering of Israel in general and of the righteous one in principle, from this reference, who would have known apart from Paul, that this was a messianic psalm, that this applied to the Messiah who was not able to please himself. And now that he's up and running, he just keeps going in this theme. In verse 9, he quotes Psalm 18 and 49, which tells of God being praised not just in Israel but among the nations. In verse 10, he quotes Deuteronomy 32 and 43. Moses, celebrating God's victory, calls on the nations to rejoice with Israel. Verse 11, he quotes Psalm 117, calling on nations to praise and extol God. And finally, in verse 12, to Isaiah 11 and 10, which tells of David's offspring, in whom all the nations will find hope. And he points out, these are not the, the, the sort of random references of a Jewish scholar. By God's inspired message in word, he tells us in verse 4 that everything that was written in the past is for our good. And that through endurance 
and the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. Notice the two things. The practical, the things that we experience, our knowledge of God that comes from the way He has dealt with us. But also the Word of God. Finally, I'd like to move from example to encouragement. There are two benefits two benedictions in these few verses. The first one's in uh, chapter 5, or verse 5, uh, sorry, verse 4, uh, and that's the one we've really just talked about, encouragement and the Scriptures uh, that bring hope. His concluding Old Testament reference in verse 12 uh, assures, assures us that hope relates not only to the Jews, but also to, to us. In this verse, his words seem to overflow with excitement and encouragement. In verse 5, the topic was unity, worship, and hope. But look at the messages in this verse, which in my Bible only takes up four lines. We find that God is a God who encourages. He's a God of hope. He doesn't come to us as a God of despair. He doesn't come to us as a God of judgment. He doesn't come to us as a God of criticism. He comes to us as a God whose objective is to bring us hope. This God we worship is an encouraging God. This God whom we worship is a satisfying God because this hope that he gives us fills us. With this hope, we don't need to go looking elsewhere. This God is a satisfying God. This God is a compassionate God because the hope he fills us with is joy and peace. Not threat and anxiety. But this God is also a demanding God. But he tells us here that it is as we trust in him. And so we either choose to embrace this hope, we either choose to embrace these great gifts, or we go our own way. We, we, we trust something else or someone else. So he is a demanding God. He's a generous God, though. He's a generous God because he fills us to overflowing. It's not a case of sort of getting to the little mark in the glass and stopping pouring, it overflows. And he's a sufficient God because this is not of us. This is through the Holy Spirit. As N.T. Wright said in his little commentary, verse 13 is one of those summary verses which says so much in such a short space, 
It would be worth learning by heart, mulling over again and again, and turning into prayer. Prayer for our churches, prayer for the worldwide church today and tomorrow, prayer for God to be glorified in the life of his people. Hi, there's only 13 verses here. Look at what we've covered. God the Father, Christ the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Scriptures, the Church, experience, brothers and sisters, personal responsibility. These verses demand a sermon series. The enormity of what God can say in so few words. But then back to the question, is this the theory or practice of my life? I always like to conclude, as some of you know, by offering a couple of things you might like to consider. Some of these will apply to you. Uh, one might apply to you. None might apply to you, but they might stimulate you to look for, for something that does. So here are a couple of things to consider for this week. For this week. Not to consider that you might do next summer when you're on your summer holiday. Because you won't. So here, here's the first one. What step will I take this week to follow Jesus more closely? Something that I will actually do. Picking up Johnny's announcement, you know, it, it might in somebody's case be baptism. In somebody's case, it might be actually coming to Christ for the very first time. For somebody, it might be church membership. For somebody, it might be a determination that they will find that 10 minutes every day to read and pray. I don't know what it is with you, but there's not one of us who don't need to follow Christ more closely this week. So what are we going to do about it? Then maybe the question might be, whose weakness will I attempt to share this week? Who is somebody that I know here who's under a great burden at the moment? And if I just bothered myself, I could help with that. Maybe that's a question for someone. Or how could I benefit my neighbor this week in a way that's good for him or her and will build him up? Or maybe it's, is there somebody I need to actively show I accept this week? Somebody who's really been very unappealing to me so far and I realize that that's not right and I'm I really just, just need to go along and talk to them and say, I really like you. Good to get to know you. It might be somebody like that. And I guess for all of us, this one will ring a bell. Is there an area in my life where I need to stop pleasing myself and please somebody else instead? But as I say, None of those may apply to you. But listen, if this passage 
is speaking to you, there will be something for you, even if I haven't managed to drop into it. Let's just take a moment for you to look at those, to think about them, to respond to God. Then I'll pray and then Oliver will come and lead us in our last hymn. Father, I guess that we have all to one extent or another found this morning that your word is sharp, it does challenge us, it moves us away from all sorts of things that we have let encumber us, and we would just ask that in that great hope and love and grace and mercy that this passage is talked about you would empower and enable us to take some small step this week, a step that pleases you, a step that helps someone else, a step that makes us more like the Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you for each other. We thank you for this fellowship that you grant us. We pray that you would bless us as individuals and bless us as a church so that your name will be glorified for Jesus' sake. Amen.